0: I'm gonna make you Welcome, my name's Kat Ellinger, and this is To The Devil A Daughter, a podcast dedicated to celebrating the Catholic feminine in all her subversive glory. Today I've picked two films that focus around the subject of chthonic motherhood, or as Barbara Creed said, monstrous motherhood, and that's Andrzej Shuowski's Possession from 1981, And David Cronenberg's The Brood, from 1979. And a massive thunderstorm has just kicked off outside. So it's like the heavens are opening to tell us that this is wrong. This is all wrong. We should not be celebrating the monstrous mother. Why did I pick this subject? I think these are two films that are very close to my heart, Possession in particular. But I'm also a mother myself and have a very complicated relationship with my own mother. And add on top of that as a feminist, I'm just forever fascinated with the weird constructions we place around motherhood. The good mother, the bad mother, how the role of the mother kind of conflicts with other roles that women can have in society. Like the lover and the professional, there's always this conflict there we use motherhood as a way of putting women under surveillance because once you become a mother your behavior is forever tracked and and put under surveillance and judged and i think that role puts an incredible amount of personal responsibility on women Obviously, much more than men. Fathers have their own responsibilities, but that's a huge other discussion for another day. We are particularly judgmental about mothers, though. And I speak from personal experience. Like I said, I won't go too much into detail, but I have a complex relationship with my own mother. She's not the perfect mother. But it took me a long time and a lot of fucking therapy to realise that a lot of my judgment of her wasn't just about her failing me it was also connected to a kind of internalized misogyny that I had what she should be as a mother and in that I forgot that she was also a human I think that's something that we do and so these films and ironically they're both films that are conceived by male rage right they're They're two films that were conceived post-divorce by angry director men and yet within that we get two of the most incredible chthonic women who happen to be mothers or their chthonic nature is linked strongly to their motherhood, to their ability to give birth and in the case of both films they give birth to something That is not the beautiful little child, it's something entirely different, something very, very monstrous. I will be giving a lot of spoilers in these, so obviously if you haven't seen the films, go off, make sure you see them. They're both quite easy to see actually, I think they're both on streaming. So go out, make sure you've seen them and then come back, or if you don't mind spoilers, then it's all cool. I think the notion or the idea or the construction that we have of the mother is very much tied to one, and this is a subject that forever comes up on this podcast, and I'm sure it won't be the end of it, but it goes back to that whole biblical fuckery of the Virgin Mary. And then post-industrialism, you also had women placed in the domestic sphere, whereas men were put into the, the public world of work mothers were seen as the cornerstone of the family they were the socializers the educators they were the warm hearth they were there to provide comfort for the children for the husband and also they were responsible for giving their children this sort of strong moral virtuous whatever Right. So there's a, there's this whole dialogue that comes out of that about what a mother should do and shouldn't do, and it's all about self sacrifice. We when we look at the mother, it's also this concept that is linked very very closely to, like I said, the virtuous. But this almost saintly thing, like the Virgin Mary, you know, and we forget the fact that childbirth is fucking messy, right? There's nothing in the world that reminds you more of what a animal the human being is, is giving fucking birth, right? Because it totally takes over. It is this very primal thing although we medicalize it now and obviously a lot of women used to die in childbirth as well so it used to be very dangerous and of course we have medicine now to help with that but even within the nicest hospital in a fucking birthing pool with the whale music going right still brings the animal out in you when you're in labor squatting into a thing i've never understood this need to clean up childbirth. But I guess that comes from male fear. There's this huge male fear of the the blood and the shit and the grunting and the pain and all of that. And so it all has to be cleaned away and (laughs) hidden away. And I think both of these films are very clear on showing that anxiety, showing that more monstrous side. If we think about motherhood in general and how it relates to the horror film, it lies at the heart of Gothic because of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. What is that about? The workshop of filthy creation. It's about the man who tried to cheat God, the man who quote-unquote gave birth to this monstrous child that he then rejected. That whole book was written by a very young woman who'd experienced child loss she'd experienced child loss, she'd experienced the pain. And so there's that very real human pain in Frankenstein when you read it. And of course, that then Frankenstein is one of the most influential books of all time. It's not just the Frankenstein films, it is influenced so much more. And so this fear of childbirth or fear of the evil mother or the monstrous child really do lay at the heart of gothic horror speaking as a pagan as well and i realize that word is like a huge broad umbrella that can mean just about anything but in my own practice my own practice does lean towards things like the divine feminine but the divine feminine within that spiritual path doesn't carry this sense of sanctimonious virtue that Christianity has placed on it. The divine feminine is linked very much to the Chthonic, to nature, like Mother Earth and all of that. It's all to do with childbirth and the life and death cycle. And so the goddesses within that realm can be nurturing, but they can also be cruel as well. It's all about this balance. They are nothing less than powerful, though, because of their ability to give birth so it's a whole different thing also sexual beings and this is the one thing that that always I just can't get my fucking head around this 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 christian based idea that mothers and sexuality also have to be separated once a woman becomes a mother she no longer has agency over her body and we're seeing that very much now in the u.s with all the shit going on with abortion rights and things like that a woman loses agency over her entire body once she falls into that realm it becomes very much about her just existing to provide or to be a vessel and of course, being a mother can be very enriching. I've got five of my own kids, for fuck's sake. But again, it should be about reality. It should be about the individual. It it should be much more complex than it is. We shouldn't be separated into these clean little boxes and judged on that. I mean, babies are made from fucking. So I've just never been able to get my head around this idea of the virgin mother right that's not a fucking thing i'm sorry bible but it's not a thing children are made from fucking, unless they are the children in possession or the brood and then they are made from something very very different almost almost I'm going to start with Possession. I know it's the later film, but just because I'm dying to talk about Possession yet again. My own personal experience with the film is, I think, very typical of a lot of people that grew up in the UK around the same time as as me because it was banned here as a video, Nasty. And I fully admit that my first experience with the film, I didn't quite understand it because in putting this banner on it, Video Nasty, right, you've got the title, Possession, you've got this synopsis, woman has sex with an octopus, which is uh, how Zhuowski sold the film to the producer, (laughs) by the way. Well, it's about a woman who fucks an octopus, or this strange octopus creature. Okay, let's make that film. But it gives you this very different expectation than the one that you then find in the film. I don't think I was mature enough to understand it either. Since then, it's it's much more well known now, obviously, and a lot of that is to do with the fact that scholars like Daniel Bird have written extensively on the film and Kayla Janice featured it in her book in House of Psychotic Women, and it was also on the cover. So... I think it's a lot more well known than it was but prior to that in the UK it was just this title on the video nasties list and I say this quite often because this has been this recent renaissance as there is every several years a renaissance or a, a sort of re-unearthing of the video nasties and people start to go after the list It's not a genre. The video Nasties was never a genre. If you look, this was on, you know, Polish weird French art house film about divorce that's horror adjacent, ends up on a list with things like Mardi Gras Massacre. Like, it makes no fucking sense. None of it made any sense. But in giving it that title, I guess it gave it this whole other thing. You think it's going to be a total horror film? And then it's not. It's, it's about marriage breakdown. I think being older now and with much more experience, it's a film that I've grown to really love, like really love. But then I love the work of Andrzej Shumowski across the board. And I just see it as another chapter in an ongoing thesis that he had. The Basically, you could call it mad love. Every single film that he made often showed these very complex romantic situations where love becomes a destructive force, a form of spiritual decay. So you find relationships that are packed with with rage, with jealousy, with paranoia, with obsession. And his work is absolutely littered with this theme that goes on and on and on. And interestingly, he said... The Possession was his most autobiographical film. It puts me in mind of what Clive Barker said about his own work. He said, the further I get away from reality, the more my work becomes a confessional, the more personal it becomes. Because admittedly, Possession is the director's most absurd work. But then he did work within absurdism a lot if you watch the rest of his films. There's not really any of them that are that straightforward outside of perhaps that most important thing, love. L'importance c'est de la I did with old Romy Schneider. I think that's about as close to realism as he gets. So to say this is the only one that was autobiographical, and if you've had a chance to listen to his old commentary for this with Daniel Bird. The Chmowski commentaries are just works of genius. He was so facetious and difficult, and he was one of those directors that hated people theorising about his films. He hated answering these more theory-based questions. You know, he could be very facetious, he could be short-tempered. He was very outspoken on his thoughts about cinema and didn't hold many other directors in high regard. And he says on that commentary, well, I'm not like Bergman. If you watch Bergman a Bergman film, you're just getting Bergman, like every like every film Bergman made was Bergman, but I'm not like that. And it's like, really? Because if you watch his body of work, it is like this recurring these recurring archetypes, these recurring situations. So I don't know whether he was in denial or whatever, but Possession certainly is of a piece with the rest of his work. I feel like when he said autobiographical, though, this film did come out of concrete personal and professional frustrations. And maybe that's what he meant by autobiographical, because for for a start... Zbigniewski was not a feminist, right? And I I think he would have balked to all the feminist readings of the film that you see nowadays. And I've obviously added to the chorus of those across the period of my own career. He had a very complicated relationship with women. On one hand, he could be very open-minded and on the other hand, sometimes borderline misogynist. He was an incredibly complex individual. And this is not a criticism. This is what I love about Chowalski. Because rather than coming into his films with some form of political agenda, what you get is this pure feeling, this honesty, this authenticity, even though they're completely absurd films. What you get is his heart. You know, so he wasn't a saint and he didn't try and be a saint. Like... For example, as Daniel Bird has pointed out in the past, Zhuowski seemed to have this obsession with what Daniel called like the angelic whore. And he also felt like a lot of Zhuowski's women had parts of Zhuowski in them. Of course, possession, because of its link to motherhood and the wife and all of those things and feminine rage. It leaves itself open to feminist readings and does resonate, quite obviously, with a lot of women. And, of course, Kayla Janice, as mentioned in a book in House of Psychotic Women, I feel like she opened the framework for that to a wider audience when she wrote about the film in her own rage, which was a very, very powerful way of framing it. One thing Dziwowski did say, though is that he wanted his films to be open to interpretation. So I'm saying he might have bulked at feminists or whatever in them, but he did also invite viewers to to make their own readings, make up their own mind. He said that his films were about morals, but he wasn't a moralist. He wasn't there to preach. What he did was trusted the audience. He trusted the audience to make up their own minds and so possession in terms of this snapshot of a marriage breaking down even though there are these very complicated feelings that the director has about women in specifically his ex-wife Mal Gazata Browneck and they divorced in 1976 she was in his earlier films the third part of the night and also the devil she was an actress so, although there's this sort of frustration that he has in the separation, this male anger that you can see in the, the just the central character, the the actual protagonist, Mark, who's played by Sam Neill. He doesn't consider Mark an angel either. So, Mark does have a judgment of his wife Anna, played by Isabel Aljani, and I'll go into the plot in a minute. But, again, it's it's complicated because he's no angel either. And so what it becomes is these two people that are pulling each other to pieces. And the only person that suffers is their son. So there's obviously parental guilt in this as well. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff. We've seen so many of these sentimental films about the breakdown of marriages and divorce and things like that. But I feel like possession is the most authentic expression of that very specific type of rage that you have when a relationship is breaking down and you've even forgotten why you're angry or who you are angry at. And so it becomes this very absurd situation where people are just lashing out because it is such a, a tumultuous, emotional, probably one of the most tumultuous emotional experiences that we can have the breakdown of a relationship and possession very much registers that it's a very authentic very honest film in that respect although some guy once he blind bought some very expensive special edition of the film and and kind of tried to make me responsible for that but then came back and said, what was this fucking film? It's just two people shouting, like, what a load of rubbish. <laughs> I'll check. Yes, check, 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 check. Why did you leave last night? Tell me alone! But you said you went to France. Why are you nagging me? Can't you just let me in i you're well, a perfect piece of you never came back. <laughs> so it's certainly not for everyone, but... When it does register with people, it seems to register on a very deep level, on a very deep level. So I want to talk a bit about Schumanski's personal and professional frustrations because he got divorced, so he's a Polish filmmaker, he actually studied in France, studied film in France, went back to Poland, ended up her uh, assistant director to Andrzej Wajda, started making his own films. His second film the devil was banned in Poland. He then went on to make a film in he went to France and he made le portante de la mer. Comes back to Poland, spends a couple of years making on the silver globe which was his opus, his science fiction opus. And in 1978, so this is just 2 years after his marriage is broken down. His wife leaves him, they get divorced. His film's seized, sort of two-thirds done, and he's expelled. So he goes back to France. So you have, at this point in time in the director's life, all the separation. Separation from his home country, separation from his family. And so what registers in the film is just this sense of frustration and anger, and it becomes this form of catharsis. Like this incredible catharsis. Mark is the central character, but interestingly, Isabel Arjani's Anna. She's the presence we feel the most and remember the most. She's the one who's written about the most, but she's not in most of the film. And I every time I go back to it, I'm always surprised by how little she's like how much more it actually focuses on Mark, but you tend to forget that. It starts off with Mark. He comes back. So he's shot in Berlin, and Berlin, as Schubowski said, is a city between the East and the West. So again, you've got this splitting of these two sensibilities, these two cultures, the future and the past for the director as well. It's a very metaphorical city, really. represents so many things during that period. He comes back from his mysterious job. He's a spy, tries to get away like the prisoner, His bosses aren't very happy. Comes back to his wife, Anna, and it becomes obvious quite early on that she's not just having an affair. She is about to leave him. She's been seeing this other guy called Heinrich. Uh, She is, the flat is a mess, you know, everything is breaking down. Mark doesn't take this very well, right? Don't oh, make me force you. Yes. You can't stop me! I open the window and jump. You need help that huh? Oh, yes. Oh, yes! Fuck your legs! Go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what he does is he uses this emotional blackmail on her, especially this responsibility that she has as a wife and mother, to try and control her, to try and pressure her into coming back to him. And the way I see it is, you know, this is a very weak, pathetic man who, in his own ways, failed the family. We don't know much about the circumstances of his job. Only that he's been away. But he's obviously left Anna to just carry the bulk of the domestic work. And she's also a ballet teacher as well. Well, he goes off and does whatever. And he he obviously feels his own guilt over that. But instead of being like a mensch about it... He starts having this really ridiculous nervous breakdown. He has Anna followed by a private detective. He involves himself with her lover, Heinrich. He's having temper tantrum after temper tantrum. And all this does is forces Anna even further away from him. And then I read that private love is a stage only at playing in many parts that are smaller than me. and. Yet I still play them, I suffer, I believe I am, but at the same time, I know there's the third possibility you know like cancer or madness this um this idea of anger and hysteria in particular is another core feature of Zowski's work, and one that I find absolutely fascinating because again he in in films like probably from l'important say the mayor actually i wouldn't say it was necessarily true of the third part of the night and then the devil but definitely his french films they have this framework that uses the conventions of melodrama so you have very, very emotional women, hysterical women. And I've written about this a few times because Zewowski was very much in in this way, like John Waters and also Fassbinder, in that all three of those took melodrama, which is considered a low genre because women's things, And they subverted it in some way. I think Zschewowski was slightly different to the other two because both Waters and Fassbinder absolutely loved the melodrama like and ironically absolutely adored it. Whereas Zschewowski seemed to have a much more distanced approach to it in that he was far more cynical. But what he did was weaponize this sense of emotion and it was usually women's emotions. And what I find so subversive about that is, for a start, if you look at the melodrama, the weepy, it's seen as sentimental, it's seen as overly artificial, overly melodramatic and therefore overly manipulative and therefore not pure cinema. And it's interesting that the films that fall into this bracket are usually quote-unquote women's films. We seem to have no problem and again this is something i go on and on and on about but it does frustrate me we have absolutely no issue with taking men's emotions in films like anger in a different of a different type aggression violence things like that revenge things vigilante things right like we have we have no issue classifying that as quote-unquote serious cinema But anything that is associated with women's emotions, that's automatically not real, too artificial, not real film. And so they get shoved out in these more highbrow, cinephile circles. And I think that's probably one of the things that harms Jouowski's reputation because, all right, for years it was difficult to see these films, but not impossible. And yet it's only now years and years and years later after tireless work of people like Daniel Byrd and then a retrospective in New York that we're finally seeing cinephiles embrace Schuowski you know because playing with those women's emotions it's it's usually not seen as very cool and so in doing this I find it really subversive the reason I find this subversive in particular is The way that he would show women truly hysterical in an angry way. And this goes back to Anna, but I can also talk about this with The Brood as well. Women's rage is seen as completely unacceptable within Western society. It's something we're socialised to suppress. Always, from the minute that we're born, we are socially sort of engineered to hold on to our rage and I've just been reading a really interesting book on that actually Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Chemley which goes over all the different ways that women are um, sort of socialized and pushed into internalizing that rage and when women strike back at this and they start to air their rage it is given these different labels from I know I had a lot of rage as a teenager and i was immediately classified as a delinquent because it was seen as entirely unacceptable women get called bitch they're seen as unnatural because we're supposed to be naturally sweet and passive and nurturing and so i think this is true for a lot of women who like exploitation or horror film a lot of the reason that we like when we see these angry women is it becomes catharsis They become a mouthpiece for something that we find it very difficult to express. And of course, if you don't express anger, because anger I think anger is a legitimate emotion. We have it for a reason. It is a neutral emotion and yet it's deemed entirely negative. It's just how you channel it. We're never given the tools to learn to channel that anger, though. And when we do eventually express it, it's very much frowned upon. So I always love to see this theme of feminine anger. Women then tend to turn that in on themselves. It becomes internalised. And possession and the brood are very much about that, this feminine internalised anger, these women who haven't been able to, to speak. Anna, in that regard, as she becomes more and more angry, is free. You look at her and she's admirable because she's free. She might be a hot mess, but she's fucking free. She's realised that her prison was this conformity to the feminine ideal. She's broken out. She's going out. She's fucking an octopus. She's fucking Heimrich. She's leaving the flat in a mess. She's shouting. You know, she's screaming on the floor. And... That just feels exceptionally powerful to me. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to see it. We don't often see women angry in that way in films because even in the cinematic model, angry women get punished. There has to be a punishment for it because it can't be encouraged. So what you see in the films of Jurowski, again, across the board, is women that lose their shit in this deeply emotional way. And it all comes out. And so it's this constant catharsis that you get, or at least I get, from his films. The fact that he used Isabelle Arjani is like this desecration, though. And he liked to do that with actresses, and she wasn't very happy with this. You think of Arjani at the time, one of France's top actresses. Although, as the director said, no one wanted to work with her at the time because she becomes so difficult. It's interesting how women become difficult and not men once they get a sense of what they want is sometimes that can be called putting down boundaries but it's often labeled as difficult by other people especially men uh, but she did she was very distraught seeing the final film because she felt like he'd made her really ugly i think she's beautiful in the film and a rage is a huge part of it but it's a different kind of beauty it's an unconventional beauty you He liked to desecrate these beloved sort of bourgeois actresses. He did it with Romy Schneider, he did it with Sophie Marceau, he did it with is- Isabelle Arjani, although Arjani only worked with him once. It is an incredible performance as well, though. And so she's beautiful because of that as well, because I think she becomes very powerful. This can't be true. I've got to keep the place clean. Oh, my God. Are you going to help me? Heinrich? You are not different from anyone else. We are all the same. Outside of the, like, the melodrama, you've also got this doppelganger theme that runs through it. And this is another thing that turns up in a lot of the director's films, some sort of obsession he had with doppelgangers sometimes that can be a literal double and sometimes it's just a sense of dualism but in essence you've got this marriage that's broken down and these two people are well Mark doesn't recreate Anna's double she just turns up as the teacher and Anna tries to recreate Mark's double but they are these like idealized versions of the husband and wife when Anna's double comes into it, she's split into two. So she quite literally becomes the Madonna in the, the whore. Another archetype that turns up in the director's films a lot. But never used conventionally. And there's a sense you get from Anna that she is like Simone in Story of the Eyes. She's quite childlike and very primal. And so this anger that comes out of her. And, and there's this sexuality as well talk a lot about the the anger in possession and not a lot about the sexuality but a lot of Anna's anger comes I think from the fact that her sexuality has been repressed with Mark out of the way she's off on a sexual adventure she it is an incredibly perverse film when you think about it you've got the so-called monstrous mother in the film who essentially has failed in her duty as a mother and a wife the son is left alone in this stinking apartment she hasn't got a shit together she's seen as borderline abusive definitely neglectful mark is not happy she's not being a good mother but on top of this right she gives birth or miscarries and this is what jewsky says she miscarries or gives birth he wasn't specific and it's not specific When she goes into the subway and she gives this wonderful speech. What I miscarried there was Sister Faith and what was left is Sister Chance. So I had to take care of my faith to protect it. And we see her in the subway and just letting out all this fucking rage, all this weird liquid comes out of her. And the original plan for this was to have... So basically to have this creature start as the liquid, it comes out of Anna, and then over the period of the film it starts to take on a full form, which... I again clive barker i was thinking of frank in hellraiser how he starts like a little thing under the floorboards but hellraiser was later than all the film hellraiser was later than that but similar kind of deal i suppose and shawasky had all these plans for it they got the legendary carlo rambaldi in or the producer did he turns up he wants three weeks to do this this creature and shawasky's like um and he's got all these condoms in his suitcase, like loads and loads of pink condoms. And Zhuwski's as like, look, we we've got three weeks for the whole film. Like, you've got one night. So he goes off into his hotel room, apparently comes back with this creature that just looks like a massive condom. So they rethink it and you get the creature that you get in the film, which is really creepy actually. And just peak Rambaldi. Just so fashioned together apparently from film stock and duct tape and God knows what. It's just remarkable. But the original plan was to have this thing evolving, growing. Until eventually it becomes the alter ego or the double of of Mark. But they couldn't do it. Instead, you just have to fill in the gaps with your imagination. So... If you fill in those gaps, it becomes apparent that this is something that Anna has given birth to and therefore it is her child. And this is where it becomes bizarrely Freudian and very fucking perverse. So she gives birth to this rage child, alien, who then becomes her lover. She then fucks it in front of her husband, her own monstrous child, and it then grows into the perfect double of her husband. So it's now her husband's son. Which presumably she's going to fuck. And I'm I'm also guilty of focusing on the rage because I think it's the most potent thing about the film. But it's also strangely erotic and weird and perverse and fucked up as well. Just not... It's all wrapped up in this very um, specifically Eastern European sensibility of absurdism. If you look at the film in that way and people who have come to it, and I think this was probably my first reaction to it as well. This isn't a horror film. If you look at Eastern Europe, though, in terms of horror, quote unquote horror, there really isn't a, a commercial side to that. But what you do get is this very strong tradition in literature and then in film of stories that take on this form of absurdism or surrealism. And wrapped up in there are all sorts of things, political commentary, personal commentary. I mean, it's just sublime. People just nowadays, I think they think of surrealism as an aesthetic and it really isn't that. It is a very transgressive art form that came from a place that was very suppressed. Again, internalised rage, very suppressed. People couldn't necessarily talk about what they wanted to talk about. And it's not so much when you look at like the surrealism that came out of France, the actual surrealist movements. They were an open response to bourgeois sensibilities, you know, to the establishment. They were angry about the war. Starts off in Dada, goes into, into surrealism, but it was a political act. It was an intellectual exercise, and it wasn't just a fucking aesthetic. It was about stripping meaning. It was about doing all these things. And when you look at this sensibility in Eastern European literature and then cinema, there is part of that, but also a lot of it is to do with right in between the lines. And a lot of these films, and I think Possession carries this very much. If you look at Shuowski's Third Part of the Night, it's a perfect example of this. Uh, Roman Polanski's The Tenant is another film that does this. Loads of Czech films, films that came out of the Czech New Wave do this, including, I think most specifically, The Fifth Horseman is Fear. But they use this, uh, what they call, strack. This fear, this paranoia. It's, It's sort of linked to the uncanny and these absurdist elements of the uncanny coming into the real world and penetrating the real world. And so everything feels off. Everything has this very strange and suffocating aura about it. And it's fucking wonderful. I think possession in this respect, really, you can see Zdowski's Polishness coming out in this. He said, again, on that commentary, he was asked about, you know, what does Mark do for a living? And he said he just took it for granted, you know, coming from Poland, that people would know, like people would know. He never thought to make it obvious and you know because he said it was a very Polish thing and I think if you read a lot of literature from that I mean I suppose the most well-known would be people like Franz Kafka but there's so much of this writing and it's not quite horror it's more about repression and paranoia and stuff like that possession is very much like that but then also weirdly and I think this was because he you you worked so much in France and it was his home at the time. You had this whole slew of films that came out in the 70s, these romance films, and and all over Europe actually, but France is the first place I think of when I think of this. But Italy did it as well, where they did have this notion of love is spiritual decay. Actually, the first two films that come to my mind are and <laughs> the night porter *A last tango in paris you've got brof checks lamarge you've got nearly everything that Romy schneider made in the 70s including the stuff with claude saute so they're french charlotte ramplin was in quite a few french films like it was a whole thing and so possession also has that in it as well it's like the marriage of these two things almost like the berlin in the film the two things coming together it's the marriage of those two things rounding up on my talk about possession before i get to the brood there was a whole retrospective a while ago now on the director's films called hysterical excess and it it's just it seems like there couldn't be any other title right because possession really much is about hysterical excess but then a lot of his films were about hysterical excess and so his work becomes a sensory experience everything is heightened we don't just observe this couple he puts them He puts us in their arguments, in their worlds, in their anger. There's like an extra level to it. Everything is bigger. Everything is more. And it's a wonderful thing. It adds this extra level of texture to the film. But I think the other thing that he loved to do was take these bourgeois worlds, this, this normal, everyday sort of bourgeois families and stuff, so when we first meet Anna Mark comes home, it's this very mundane, normal sort of place. And then he would break that, right? And he would have his characters break that. So people in these films often act in direct conflict to the social rules of decorum, these very bourgeois type of social rules, these middle class Worlds and so people will act completely unstable or unpredictably. I was in his bed the first night I met him, if you have to know. What do you expect of me? Look what you're doing! No one is good or bad, but if you want, I'm a bad one. And if I knew he existed in this world, I would have never had Bob with you! Get up! Get up! Get up. Or they'll act mad in public or they'll be deliberately impolite or they'll show heightened, unfiltered emotions that they shouldn't. And I feel like within that, Schiwowski was constantly like disrupting this bourgeois, middle class bubble, although his films weren't really specifically about class. But they did focus on that world that more middle well not the first two polish films but once he gets to france they did start to focus more on that more middle class world and more middle class people but they were people that would go completely against the social order in an unpredictable way and i think it makes it difficult for people to relate to some of his characters i think why are they doing that why are they doing that why are they doing that but to me, I just I just love the subversion of it all. And obviously a lot of other people do as well. And I just love the fact that it's very impolite and is basically a massive fuck you. Uh, there is a moral at the end, but the director said that he didn't make judgments. He didn't want to moralise. But we learn that the boy suffers. It's the children who suffer for these adults and I guess they're both very selfish adults, but as you ask, he wasn't there to judge. I think what he was doing in the film was reflecting on his own sense of guilt in some way, whether he was conscious of that or not. But it's almost as if he's trying to recreate the family by the end, and it just can't be done because it's all perverse, and Isabel Jani's now with, a, with her alien son husband so yeah on with the brood then which is just as fucked up hello who's this ruth mayer did you want to speak with frank carvath ruth mayer from crell street school yes is this mrs carvath are you and my husband having your own private pta meeting miss mayer I'd probably say the brood is my favourite Cronenberg. I kind of flip flop between the brood and Videodrome, but the brood is probably the one that I've returned to the most. But then I did flip-flop again about whether to include this next to Possession, and it's quite interesting why, because I started to think, well is Samantha Eggers, you know, an acceptable form of the chthonic feminine because she, she's a very strange character. And then I started having this whole argument with myself, like, fuck that. Why are you trying to discount Nola and her little trauma rage children? Don't fucking do that. All chthonic is acceptable here and then the more I think about it because her character is kind of gross in a certain way it's probably even more subversive than Anna because there's nothing socially acceptable about this woman and so yeah we should all be there for that basically I don't know why I even questioned it because I kept coming back. Well, what else could go with possession? There isn't fucking anything else. Well, there is one film, it's a TV movie, Polish, called Jajo from 1984, which I featured on my Patreon a while back, I think last year. And that one is about a woman who finds this mysterious egg and there's. There's mysterious beast fucking in that as well with the thing that comes out of the egg. So I don't know if this was like a Polish thing or what. But Jojo's only like three quarters of an hour long. And it's like it has to be the brood. I shouldn't even be questioning this. Another film, another male director's divorce film. Cronenberg called this his Kramer versus Kramer, only more realistic. It features a couple who have an ongoing conflict custody thing going on with their child, Candice, and Frank Carverth, who's the father, played by Art Hindle. He's very concerned. His estranged wife, Nola, has gone into this experimental treatment facility this weird hippy-dippy new age psychology thing, like so many in the 60s and 70s, and you think, you know, late 60s was when Cary Grant was taking a shitload of LSD and having therapy. There was so much of this crap that came out in the 70s, and a lot of people, I guess, read this film as a satire of that, and it kind of is, but it's a much more personal film for Cronenberg as well. The therapy she's undertaken is called psychoplasmics. The beginning of the end for me, my family, my dream. So sad. And I feel so guilty for my part in it. I wish it had never happened. I wish we could be together again. Just the three of us. You're kidding yourself. Right now you're dreaming. What Frank tells me was lousy from the very start. You never had anything real together. And there's this, again, it takes place in this very middle class world. So you've got this retreat, this centre that's run by this psychoanalysis called Hal Raglan. He's played by the fucking brilliant Oliver Reed and he is so stony faced and into this role. It's the best thing ever coming out with all this experimental psychotherapy gibberish. Think of you as a girl all the time, couldn't I? buy your frocks and your dresses and your frilly hats and your frilly scarves and you could be you could be daddy's little girl. I wouldn't have to be so fucking ashamed of being seen with you in public, would I, eh? What do you think of that, Michelle? Sounds like a good idea. Don't oh. daddy. Don't what? but the the thing with this uh this therapy is it's like a trauma therapy. Is the people having the therapy go through this role play with Dr. Raglan, and like he'll play their father or whoever it is, and they're forced to, I guess, act out and speak out about their anger, about their frustrations, about what they're disappointed about. And then all that pain, all that trauma comes out and registers on the outside of the body in things like disgusting boils or in one case a cancerous tumour, although that's not what happens with Nola. Slightly different from yours? Yeah, how different? Well, my wife is still in therapy with Raglan. Uh, I'm claiming psychological damage, uh, not physiological. I see, well, uh, give him some more time with your wife. And you'll be able to claim physiological damage too. We must look impressive in court. Uh, Mm Hmm? You like it? I do. That's Raglan. That's Psychoplasmics. (laughs) It's called lymphosarcoma, and it's spreading. Far from. Like, not really understanding why, how that's healing, because there doesn't seem to be a way to get rid of these external things. That notion is kind of ahead of the curve, because we see so much now about how hidden trauma and hidden anger and internalised anger can affect the body and can make people sick, and so therefore we have to bring it out. And the film does sort of touch on that. So it's weirdly prescient, although we don't have people walking around with all boils over their bodies. They just, you know, do a bit of alternative therapies, thank God. But it is very much in that. And the film is about generational trauma. Again, something we hear so much about now, but no one was really talking about in 1979, not on that level. So Frank comes to the hospital. He's told he can't see his wife. The daughter goes there for visits on the weekend and she comes out one day and she's covered in bruises. And Frank goes fucking apeshit. He's like, she's not going to see the kid anymore. Tells the doctor, she's not going to see the kid anymore. That's it. She's abused her. She was abused herself. She's now become the abuser. I'm not having this. And the doctor's like, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're gonna ruin her treatment, doesn't this, and go storming off. I wanna see my wife now. You know she's still undergoing intensive therapy. I can't let you break that isolation. Well, you let her see Candace on the weekends, don't you? Yes, Frank, I do, but then that's different. Regular visits from her daughter was built into her program from the very start. Yeah, well, her program has just changed. The more I see this film, the more I start to recognise that a lot of it is about male anger as well and male entitlement. Like, to be fair, Frank seems pretty pissed off anyway. He feels like Nola's let him down. He seems to have a real issue with the Doctor as if the Doctor has taken her away in some way, taken her away from the family. There's this weird understated jealousy about that. And so it's not just really about a father protecting his daughter. There's all this rage that he already has towards the wife who he feels has failed failed him. And it's a really interesting aspect of the film because like Possession, the film shows both sides, although it tries to make, I guess, Frank the, the more moral character. He's not really either he's kind of selfish he's you know he goes on that it's about his daughter but it's not just that you know he's really got it in for this doctor there's a lot about ego going there this entitlement he says a lot of things like my wife that is my wife as if she's a piece of property and you get the sense that he doesn't really see nola as a person as a human or doesn't really give a shit about what she's been through or the fact that she's in this therapy the fact that she was abused by her own mother and the other main guys in the film well, it's really a peripheral character so there's the mother who was abusive and then there was the stepfather who was like this very weak man who covered up the abuse so all these layers all these layers of abuse of generational trauma the idea of the the abused becoming the abuser you know all stuff that we hear so much about today but then you bring in this extra layer of the psychoplasmatics and it is really parallel to possession although it was made a couple of years before because nola like anna is judged she's very judged by her husband She is seen to not know her own mind. She is seen as a dangerous figure, as a bad mother. All these labels are thrown at her. And again, we don't really see much of Nola. We barely see her. What we know of Nola, until the climax of the film, most of it comes from Frank. And this it's not just that she's hurt Candace. It's this anger that he has anyway. So, it is this situation of two people pulling each other apart and the kid getting damaged as well. So, again, on Cronenberg's part, it could also be about parental guilt. You know, there's just so much stuff in there. These are people that are not very kind to her. On top of that, though, you've got the teacher, Ruth Mayer. So, Frank, he's rushing around. He's trying to find these other people that had psychoplasmatics. He wants to get the dirt. On the old doctor, he wants to bring it all down, man, because he's sick of it. And he invites uh Candice's teacher, Ruth, round for dinner because you know, he again he's not like this saint. You get the sense that he's invited her over to fuck initially, but then he gets called over to the mother in law's house, so that's interrupted. But she's played by Susan Hogan and she is everything that Nola isn't. She's like the doppelganger of Anna in possession she is nurturing she's a primary school teacher she got her shit together she puts the the children's welfare first she is quite saintly old ruth and she goes off ends up babysitting you know she's the sort of woman guy invites her on a on a date the meal gets interrupted and she's like oh yeah i'll sit around in your house and babysit your kid you know, she's like she's like that woman. Gets her face kicked in by a load of evil babies in, in the process of that as well. So, again, there's this uh, juxtaposition of the bad woman and the good woman, the idealised woman and the spoilt, desecrated woman. Essentially, though, this is like another retelling of Frankenstein. It's called that fear of birth, the monstrous birth that lies at the heart of gothic very much that because nola doesn't develop boils and she doesn't develop cancerous tumors she births out these little rage kids that then go and beat the shit out of anyone that she's angry with they just kick their fucking heads in and trample them to death. That's that's what they do. <laughs> so birth in this is like, it is incredible. It becomes this hugely monstrous force that is against all of nature. Childbirth is supposed to be this beautiful, clean godliness. You know, it's all this like, virtuous the nurturing mother and then you've got samantha eggers there with these like little placenta sacks all strapped over over her birthing out these fucking things from her wound and then licking them oh god nola no i disgust you i sicken you You hate me. You didn't come here because you love me. You came here to take our daughter away and give her to somebody else. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to you. And it's absolutely grotesque and it's absolutely confrontational. And it's every man's worst nightmare. And of course, Frank goes in, he's like, hi, honey, I'm, because he's trying to get the kid back all safe. And old Oliver Reed, you know, they become friends now, because they're both shit scared of Nola, who's pumping out these things in little ski jackets. You don't want to piss her off, (laughs) right? But, and then he looks at it, and he's like, what, fuck me, like, I can't deal with this. And so he's, entirely cowardly at the end he's not man enough to actually stand there and be there for nola and acknowledge what she's been through as the monstrous mother she is absolutely terrifying and powerful and full of fucking rage and i think you know it goes against literally everything like this isn't just an abusive mother or a neglectful mother This is a mother who uses childbirth deliberately as a destructive cannon. She is firing these things out and also firing them out from this wound as well in her stomach. And it's just such an incredibly perverse thing. It's such a fucking incredibly perverse thing. So she's entirely chthonic she is the dark goddess sat there and of course as the dark goddess she has to be destroyed i think in both of these films there's so much male anger towards women for letting them down because they did not i mean i don't know the circumstances of either personal situation but just from what i read in the films frank is again very much like mark in possession in that he feels like it's almost as if he feels like something he was owed was taken away from him or that if someone is is your wife therefore you have rights over them and their behavior as a kind of property thing and i guess the cronenberg film goes more you know nola is too far gone she's totally evil whereas possession is much more open-ended it's much more ambiguous i guess and it leaves on a strangely i i don't know maybe a hopeful no i i don't know it's very very ambiguous but it is really about trying to have rebirth after destruction Whereas in The Brood, it's purely about destruction. It's purely about breakdown. There's so many dark feelings in this film. But the kids in their little ski jackets are fucking amazing. The fact that you could just plop these things out and anyone who pissed you off, you can have them just appear wherever that person is and give them a horrible end, I think is a wonderful thing. And I guess we talk about the love child. We hear that thing, you know, a child born in love will be beautiful and the love child and all of that. Well, Cronenberg made the rage child. I mean, is this a thing? It's the rage child. This is what you get if if you birth out something in hate. It comes back to Frankenstein's workshop of filthy creation and birth coming from death coming from decay so even though the brood is much more of a body horror it is essentially a gothic film much more, i wouldn't say the possession was if i actually found a film i can't call gothic but the brood does have aspects of the gothic so the breaking down of the family nola is essentially the mad woman in the attic only in this case she's the mad woman in the very nice architecture 70s experimental therapy unit but she is the mad woman in the attic and the mad woman in the attic is obviously like the recurring trope within gothic within gothic mystery and it's all again linked to women's hysteria women's breakdown but she refuses to stay the mad woman in the attic and i think that's the most powerful thing about her she's like fuck you i'm not going to be locked away i'm not going to be the mad woman in the attic while you go off with Ruth the teacher and have your cozy little dinners and I'm working here trying to get over my trauma fuck you I'm not going to be hidden away by that the whole hospital or unit or whatever it is are evacuated just to accommodate Nola she ends up with the whole hospital (laughs) like everyone is so terrified it's just her and Oliver Reed and even he admits that he doesn't know what he's gonna do like he's got totally in over his head and he's like fuck and this to me is just really fascinating because as much as there is about monstrosity and motherhood and all that sort of stuff both of these films are also about male weakness in when confronted with the chthonic feminine frank is not a hero and By the end of that film, it shows that the trauma carries on. You know, he's not broken the cycle. That it carries on that we perpetuate these cycles. So it's got this very cynical, almost depressing ending to it, which is wonderful. And there is criticism of masculinity. There's criticism within these films, both of these films. Which I think is just a byproduct of directors putting all of themselves into a film, like all of their frustrations and channeling. Like I said, anger to me can, is neutral, it's an energy and it can be channeled in different ways. And in this case, both cases, it's been channeled creatively into two fucking amazing films, two amazing films that really show some of the most powerful, catholic women ever put on on screen and interestingly they come from men's frustrations from their anger so that's me for today i hope you've enjoyed this episode if you do want to check these episodes out earlier than they publicly air then you can find them on my patreon which is Cat Ellinger's Confessions of a Cineset i also do regular videos on there about other films select scene commentaries I run a film club, there's a bunch of other stuff. Or if you just want to support the show, the lowest tier starts at a dollar a month and it would be much appreciated. And I will be back very soon with another episode. Until next time.